If you've got your Bible open there in front of you, we're going to work with what is the last half of Luke chapter uh, 16. It's one last parable in a run of five parables that have kind of come back to back to back in Luke 15 and 16. It puts before us the stark reality that human life is fragile and finite. And it also puts before us in stark reality the fact that eternity is definite and decisive. And that the decisions we make in our fragile and finite time on this earth impact the nature of that eternity. And so where we're going to end, sort of land this morning, is that eternity is definite and decisive. Life is fragile and finite. And that's going to sort of even provide like the outline for this morning. We're going to situate this parable in its larger context in Luke, and then we're just going to work with eternity being definite and decisive and life being fragile and finite. In Jesus's plea in Luke 15 and 16, his plea throughout his ministry and the plea of the entirety of scripture is that we would live our lives in light of the realities of eternity. If you've got Luke open there in front of you, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. This is Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham! He called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's kind of situate this a little bit. When we introduced the book of Luke at the start of this series, I mentioned that there are some themes that are prevalent throughout all of Luke's gospel account. In fact, they're present throughout all of Luke's writings, both in his gospel and then in the second volume of his work, which is the book of Acts. Those themes include the fact that God is active and working in the world that he created. He's not distant and far off and unconcerned. Another is the fact that Jesus is the saving hope of the whole world. Jews, Gentiles, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, all the nations. Another is that Jesus is cause for celebration. We see that as people walk away rejoicing after interactions with him. Another is that the culturally insignificant are eternally significant. We see that in women who are emphasized throughout but were culturally insignificant. In Jesus' time, we see that in the way Jesus relates to the outcasts. He draws them near rather than pushing them away. We see that in how he relates to the poor. 
And a recurring element in Luke's writing is that of surprising reversals. He takes what would have been expected and he flips that on its head. We see that in just the very birth of Jesus, that Jesus comes not in power, but in weakness as a baby. We see it in the way women are positioned throughout the gospel, that they're esteemed and valued near Jesus, important to his ministry. They're the first ones to the tomb and to see that he is resurrected. We see it in the way that Jesus deals with those who are outcasts. He draws them near and they're actually shown to have access to the kingdom of God in ways that the religious elite of that time were rejecting. Jesus says that the poor are blessed. We even see it at the end of Jesus's life, which doesn't end with an ascension to worldly power or an earthly throne, but it ends in a death on a cross and then a triumph from the grave and an ascension not to a worldly throne, but to the throne of God at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Those themes and those reversals continue throughout the book of Acts. And in what we've been looking at over the last few weeks in Luke 15 and 16, there are reversals specifically as it relates to earthly wealth. And so in Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, there's a wealthy father who's willing to eschew the norms of his day and give his younger son the inheritance that he asks for, despite the fact that dad isn't dead. And the great reversal comes when the son goes away, makes a mockery out of the father's wealth and his lavish goodness, blows all the money, and the father accepts him back home. The Pharisees in the middle of Luke chapter 16 are chided for being lovers of money. Jesus is challenging the fact that they're not good stewards of what God has given them. Their wealth is not a virtue in itself, as was common convention. And the Pharisees weren't handling properly the influence and the position that God had given them. That's shocking to Jesus's listeners. In this parable, a rich man's riches and a poor man's poverty are reversed in eternity. The main point of this parable is that worldly status does not equate directly to one's eternal future. One of the things that Jesus is bringing to our attention in this whole section and and throughout all of his teachings is that the pursuit of wealth often makes one blind. It blinds us to eternal reality. It blinds us from the plight of the vulnerable. It insulates us as we consume ourselves with comfort and control that we think we can get from money, wealth. Doesn't matter how much money we might have, we can be blinded in those kinds of ways. If we make wealth the king of our heart, the thing that we live in response to and in pursuit of. And the other reality is that the absence of wealth often leaves one without comfort, without control. It leaves them vulnerable. Look at the parable briefly. In the first couple of verses here, we get a description of these two states. There's a rich man, and he is totally concerned only about the rich man. Dines well, dresses well, lives lavishly, like the Pharisees that Jesus confronted in verse 14 of chapter 16. These Pharisees were lovers of money. This man is a lover of money and more specifically what money can give him. And even in his death, he's able to make use of the comforts and control that his wealth affords him in order to be buried. That's what we're told at the end of verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. Meanwhile, the poor man died. We're not told that. Burial was expensive, something that only someone with 
wealth and means could have afforded at that time. And Lazarus, on the other hand, beginning in verse 20, he was a poor man. He longs to eat the scraps from the table of the rich man's feasts. He has no comfort. He instead has sores that cover his body. And we're told the dogs come by and they lick those sores. And that's not the mental image of like your labradoodle coming over for some kisses. These are like packs of wild dogs. And as this man, sick, poor, lays at the rich man's gate, he doesn't even have the capacity to fend off these dirty, mangy, roving dogs from licking his sores. He's exposed, he's hungry, he's sick, he's poor, he's vulnerable in every way imaginable. And the comfort and control that the rich man's pursuit of wealth brings into his life so insulates him that we're supposed to get the impression that he not only does nothing on Lazarus's behalf, he isn't even concerned that Lazarus is out there despite knowing he's there. He knows his name. Barely registers his presence. And when it comes to wealth and money and what it looks like to live as people of God's kingdom who have Jesus as their king, what we're supposed to gather from the whole of Jesus' teaching in this run of parables is that as followers of Jesus, we pursue righteousness. Righteousness, even with our money, which would include caring for, concerning ourselves with, and engaging in just action on behalf of the vulnerable. What you get in this parable is an illustration of what a heart looks like that's consumed with money. What a heart looks like that's consumed with greed. You get that picture in the rich man. The point that Jesus is making throughout this stretch in Luke's gospel is that the fruit of a person's life includes this attitude toward their stuff and includes this attitude toward the vulnerable. And if you're going to be someone who lives in the kingdom, you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have a different attitude toward your stuff and a different attitude toward the vulnerable. We are to set aside the pursuit of wealth and instead steward all of God's blessings in our lives toward his glory and all of its facets, which includes being attentive to those who are vulnerable. This weekend is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a day where churches across the nation acknowledge the immeasurable value of every life. And there's a unique Christian doctrine that makes it so that of all people, Christians ought to hold the highest view of just how precious and important human life is. And that doctrine is that all of humanity is made in God's image, that life is valuable and precious because each and every human being, Christian or not, is made in the image of God. We bear God's image in the world that he created and therefore every human being is worthy of dignity and care and respect. It's the precious nature of human life that has motivated the church throughout history to work on behalf of the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the enslaved, the outcast, the prisoner, the foreigner, the unborn, the aged, the disabled, the discriminated against, the underserved, the overlooked, and many, many more. It's the fruit of the hearts of people who have submitted themselves to the kingdom of God throughout history that has led modern churches today to spearhead efforts around the world to address, confront, stand against, and pursue just action as it relates to food and water crises. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, abortion, poverty, 
trying to get medical care to those who have no access or educational opportunities to those who have no access, providing care for immigrants, care for the orphan via adoption or foster care, and on and on. The reality of life's sanctity and the call to care for the vulnerable that has led the church throughout history and around the world today to act in these ways is the fruit of lives transformed by the kingdom of God. These actions and many more are evidences of the fruit of God's spirit and the breaking in of his kingdom in our broken and sin-stained world. And we at LCF join in those efforts. We want to join in the chorus of proclaiming that life is valuable and precious. And we've done so in various ways, both in the life of our church today and over the existence of our church. We've done so through our partnership with World Vision in engaging the global water crisis. We've done so in our engagement and support of Liberty Women's Clinic, which is a crisis pregnancy center right here in the Northland that helps women and families navigate unexpected pregnancies on behalf of the unborn and for the good of those families. This plays out in our engagement with Care Portal, which is a ministry that seeks to provide for the very practical needs of families engaged in foster care or who are at risk of losing their children from their homes. It's evidenced in our involvement with Afghan refugee resettlement over the last couple of months in our partnership with Inasmuch Ministries, which provides food to the less fortunate here in our community and a host of other actions throughout the years. But it's also evidenced in the lives of individuals within our church. People who take medical mission trips, provide foster care and adoption for those who are vulnerable right here in our own communities and a host of other ways. And the crux of Jesus' parable is that the actions of this rich man in relation to Lazarus' vulnerability paint a picture of the reality of that man's heart. The king in this man's life is his money and his comfort, his control. And it's not his wealth that sent him to hell and it's not Lazarus's poverty that sent Lazarus to heaven. Jesus is illustrating the fruit of the rich man's life made visible the reality of his heart. The two parables here in Luke 16 call us to take a hard look at the way our hearts steward our lives in light of the reality of human life and the reality of eternity. Heaven is definite, decisive. Eternity is definite, decisive. The fact that this is a parable doesn't inform the way we understand what Jesus is saying. We kind of want a hero and a villain. So we read this and we see the rich man and we see the outcome and we kind of think to ourselves, ha, got what he deserves. That's not how Jesus's listeners would have listened to this. They would have listened to this wanting to learn something about their souls and the deepest things of reality. And what they would have heard is that there is a definite and decisive eternal reality that awaits every soul that exists. The point is not to give us a descriptive picture of all of the realities of heaven and hell. The intent is not a comprehensive picture of everything that's included within sort of eternal reality. But at the same time, there are a few things we can take away that absolutely align with what the scriptures say about eternity. And so I wanna offer four of those this morning. The first is that heaven and hell exist. They are real. The totality of scripture puts into stark reality that life is more than our time here on earth, that eternity stretches out before our souls and that 
Eternal existence will either be spent in heaven in the presence of the Lord and all of his goodness or in hell apart from the Lord and even apart from the faintest hints of his grace. Heaven is a place where there is no more sin, no more brokenness, no more wickedness, no evil, no more marks of sin and brokenness as they exist in our world. Heaven is a place where the people of God spend eternity in perfect communion with God, basking in the full glory of God, made whole and glorified by the power of God, all through the saving work of the Son of God. Heaven is all about God, and hell is the opposite. Hell is all about the absence of God. No relationship with God, no peace of God, no restraining grace of God. And the images that crop up in this parable are on par with what we see in other places in Scripture. We're told that there's torment and agony There's images of fire. We're told that the rich man is thirsty. And all of it is uncomfortable to consider and difficult to reckon with. C.S. Lewis says this, that we can picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. And I chose that particular quote as it relates to hell because we see that very idea in the rich man. Look at verses 23 and 24. Being in torment in Hades, he looked up. He saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. And Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me. And what does the rich man want? That poor sick guy to bring him some water. Have mercy. Send the guy who could be no more than my servant on this earth to be my servant in the afterlife. His needs, his dignity, clings to the the ideas of his self-importance, thinking that he can boss Lazarus, the poor sick man around, just like he could have here on earth. Heaven and hell exist and they are permanent. The biblical picture of eternity is that it's eternal. Here in the parable, we get the same idea. We're told that Lazarus was taken home upon death, which fits with the verbiage that David uses in Psalm 23, that one day he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lazarus cannot leave to quench the rich man's thirst. He cannot leave to help the rich man's brothers. The rich man cannot leave to help himself or to help his family. There's this great chasm that Jesus uses in the illustration to picture that there's a permanently separate place in eternity. Another is that in heaven or hell, we are aware. And this is probably the one of the three of these that would be the most debated, that the biblical picture of Heaven or hell is that we will be aware of our eternal state. We don't hear anything from Lazarus in the whole parable, not when he's alive, not from eternity. We do hear from the rich man. He speaks and he knows where he is and he knows what he's experiencing and he doesn't want his brothers to join him. And in the same way that Lazarus knew during his life that the dogs were licking his sores and that the rich man was feasting on lavish food inside that house, The rich man knows in eternity that he's in pain and he is thirsty. 
And when Abraham speaks, he acknowledges as much in verse 25. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he, Lazarus, is comforted here while you are in agony. There's awareness there. And we accept that awareness easily as it regards heaven, but not always quite so much as it has to do with hell. There are some who think that hell will not be a place of awareness. To hold that view is strange in light of the Bible's language about the nature of hell, but also in light of the Bible's descriptions of heaven. No one would ever think to themselves, we're going to go off to be in heaven and we're not going to know it. No one would ever say, I think when I go to heaven, I'll be totally unaware of that. And I get the desire to think or to reason away the difficult realities of hell. They're uncomfortable. They're hard to reckon and square with. But the Bible, if nothing else, is honest. Honest about the deepest realities of human life and eternity. And Jesus, if nothing else, is honest. Even when being honest is difficult for us to accept. Last, in heaven, God's people will be glorified. One last piece here, but it's also very important. Notice that Lazarus is not an angel at the end of this. He has a restored body, so it seems. No more sores, no more sickness. He's comforted. That is the reality of our future in heaven for those who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We do not become angels. They are a different order of created beings. They serve the Lord in a different way than humanity. Our souls go to be in the presence of the Lord and we receive glorified bodies that are free from the constraints of these earthly bodies. There will be a changing for us, but it won't be to being angels. We will be present with the Lord in heaven alongside the angels. And in the worship that erupts from that, in all of eternity, from the angels And from those who have been saved and glorified, all of that is going to redound to the glory of the Lord forever and ever and ever. And a couple quick mentions here of aspects of the parable that are a little bit curious. You might have these questions, so I just want to bring them to the surface and address them. Will angels shuttle our souls to heaven? That's a fair question. I don't know the answer to that. We're given some clarity in scripture about the differences between the role of humanity and the role of angelic beings and the fact that those are different created orders. But we don't get a complete job description for angels. So common Jewish thought at the time of Jesus was that that was a role that angels would play, that when an individual dies, angels would would sort of shepherd their souls into heaven. Could that be the case? Absolutely. If I die and that's what happens, I'm going to like fist bump the angel and say, hey, thanks, man. But that also might not be the case. Question number two, will we be able to see across this, quote, great chasm into hell? And those who are in hell be able to see across that chasm into heaven? My answer there is no, I don't think so. My interpretation of this parable is that that idea of Abraham and Lazarus looking down and seeing the rich man and the rich man looking up and seeing them is a literary device that Jesus is using in the context of the parable. In life, Lazarus sat at the gate where the rich man comes in and out. He could see into the courtyard where the rich man feasted at meals. The rich man would pass by and see Lazarus sitting there in all of his misery and vulnerability. And what Jesus is highlighting is the reversal that now... In heaven, 
The rich man sees Lazarus's comfort and wishes it were his own, like Lazarus spent his life wishing the rich man's comfort was his. I think that's a literary device in the parable. Last, will there be communication from heaven to hell and vice versa? To that, I give an unequivocal and swift no. We can draw those things out, but what I want to spend a little bit of time sort of pastorally engaging with this morning is an obvious but maybe overlooked aspect of the parable. Verse 22, one day the poor man died. End that sentence. Next sentence is also verse 22. The rich man also died. Eternity is definite and decisive. Human life is fragile and finite. Despite all the differences between these two men in their lives, they meet the same end. They die. This is an aspect of life that has been brutally evident within sort of the life cycle of our church over these last few months. We have a fairly young congregation. It's not normal for us to be hosting a lot of funerals here. And yet, over the last few months, we've had a lot of them sort of back to back to back. The reality of humans' fragility and finiteness has sort of crashed into the life of our church in a very poignant way recently. In fact, in our society as a whole, this pandemic has shoved that in front of us in difficult and sort of brutal ways. Even outside of illness, if you've been around LCF for very long, we found out recently, just last week, that Moise Vival, a former ministry partner, when we did ministry in Haiti, that he got in a car accident in Port-au-Prince and died tragically and unexpectedly. Like these kinds of things have just been shoved in front of us, in front of our hearts and minds over the last few months. And it's human nature to assume and presume that life is almost indefinite. Like we wake up in the morning with the assumption that there will be innumerable mornings still dangling out there in the distance for us. That's not a critique. It's not a criticism. That's the nature of human life. But sometimes the circumstances that surround us in our personal lives, in the lives of our loved ones, in our communities or in our countries, in a larger sense, it forces unpleasant reminders upon us that immortality is not reality for humanity. And typically when those things intrude upon our kind of naive blissfulness, we we do the best we can to shove them away as fast as possible. Grapple with them for a second, move move them out of our thought process so we can get back to life as normal. But the Bible is clear. Life is fragile and finite. James says that our lives are like a vapor, here one minute, gone the next. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for people to die once. In the scope of eternity, our time on this earth is less than a blip on the radar. And yet, our lives are valuable and precious of immeasurable worth. And so you take those two things and you sort of stick them side by side. And what it ought to do in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus is stir in us a desire to take this blip of a life and use it in light of eternity. the Bible's recurring reality in this regard is that we can only do so when Jesus is king, 
when he's the ruling and reigning reality in our lives, that is what provides us with the ability to live in such a way that our lives flourish and thrive the way that God intended. But you put anything else onto that throne in your heart and you will begin to short circuit that process in your life and you will leave yourself in a dangerous place when it comes to eternity. Eternity is definite and decisive. Life is fragile and finite. And living in that reality, heeding Jesus' plea to live our fragile, finite lives in light of the definite and decisive reality of eternity, first and foremost, begins with recognizing that there is more to life than life. It is unthinkably good and gracious of God to provide a means by which we can spend eternity in his presence in heaven. And the means by which we can do that is only ever always by God's grace through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. The message of Jesus' preaching ministry is that eternal life boils down to having him as king in your heart. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so in our direct context, if you take money and you make it your king, it will provide the facade of comfort and control in this life and then be able to do nothing for you in eternity. If you make relationships or acclaim, praise, accomplishments, career, family, good behavior, the accumulation of power, the profession of, or the uh, sort of outward expression of individual freedom, the pursuit of pleasure, the manicuring of an image or anything else, the king and ruling power in your life, they may provide something that temporarily soothes you in the here and now, but they will be able to do nothing and they will fail you when your life inevitably comes to an end and you stand before the judge. Life is fragile, finite. Eternity is real as are heaven and hell and God has graciously provided the way for humanity to spend their eternity in the unthinkable glory and bliss of heaven with him. And that is only available through Jesus. Look at the way this parable ends. The rich man is begging, verse 27. Send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And the rich man says, that won't do it. But if someone from the dead rises and goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. These are words from the mouth of Jesus before he's gonna do what? rise from the dead. Like this is Jesus painting a picture of the reality that if your heart has as its king something other than him, it won't matter if the prophets tell you to do something different. It won't matter if Moses tells you to do something and it will not matter if Jesus himself rises from the dead. You will so enthrone that thing on your heart that you're unwilling to take a transparent look at all the devastation that that thing causes inside of you and neglect all of the life that this risen man could bring to you. If you've not ever made that decision, I cannot implore you enough to consider the realities that we've laid out today and then to take a long, hard, honest, transparent look at your own heart and whatever is king there. And then to take a long, 
hard, honest, transparent look at the claims and the truths of Jesus and ask yourself the following question. Which king is good? Honestly. Which king is good? If you do know Jesus and you are following him, I can't implore you enough to steward the finite days of your life on this earth in light of the kingdom of God, in light of his rule and his reign in your heart and extending through you into this world. Let the daily realities of life in this broken place remind you that this world is not forever, that your life is fragile and finite, that eternity is definite and decisive. And I mean, let it give you those reminders in the most mundane and practical of ways colds and sniffles and sore throats and surprise diagnoses and fevers, let them remind you that this body is going to fail you at some point. It will. Let frustrations with the brokenness of this world and all of the ways it's evident in our society remind you that you have a home beyond this one where none of those things are going to be present. Let the very breakdowns and deteriorations of your stuff remind you that those things were never meant to eternally satisfy. My wife and I moved into a house a little over a year ago. And since we moved in, our faucet in the kitchen, like the handle that you turn the water on, is like loose and floppy. And so when you turn the water on, there's no way to guarantee, A, that you're ever going to be able to get that water turned back off, and B, what temperature is about to come out of there. And I do the dishes, typically, in our house. And so every night I stand there and I turn this thing on and it's a total like lottery. What's going to come out of there? Hot, cold. I don't know. Just scrub a little harder if it's cold. And then how long am I going to stand there and try to shove this thing back down to get it to turn off eventually? And all of it reminds me every single night, this house was not meant to satisfy my soul. We put a new faucet in eventually. My life is no better. This stuff is passing away. Your clothes wear out. Your car wears out. The golf clubs wear out. The boat wears out. Stuff inside your house or in your lake house or in your vacation house wears out. Let it remind you, none of that was meant to satisfy. Let the depletion of your bank account remind you that you can't take that with you anyway. My wife's grandmother, Grandma Betty, passed away not long ago. And when we gathered together with her family to do family Christmas, her dad stood up at the beginning and he said that his Grandma Betty's life was really starting to fade. She was very concerned over the last few months that she would have some sort of inheritance to pass along to her six kids and then all of the grandkids, of which there are many. And she would ask my my, uh, wife's dad frequently to let her know, like, What does she have left? And when, you know, the end finally came and they did all of the totaling, they gave each one of us an envelope. Inside that envelope, there was one bill. And I opened it up and I remember thinking, ah, I wish there were more. And then I remember thinking, I'm so glad that Betty McQuarrie in all of her faithful following of Jesus, hit the finish line and that bank account was basically empty. 
because that money did far more for the kingdom of God as her and her husband used it for the expanse of the gospel than it would do if it just sat in my bank account. Let the dormant trees and plants that exist in winter remind you that one day this world is going to pass away and it will be replaced by one that our minds can't even comprehend. Let the passings of loved ones remind you that such is the difficult and unfortunate reality for all of us in a fragile and finite world. And yet, let the definitive and decisive nature of eternity remind you that your one fragile, finite life matters. It matters for the glory of God and the expanse of his kingdom. And so allow the reality of eternity to unseat anything lesser from the throne of your heart than Jesus so that he and he alone sits in the ruling and reigning place inside of you. Let the reality of eternity stir you to share the gospel boldly. Allow the reality of eternity to lower you so that you walk in humility. Allow the reality of eternity to open your eyes to the plight of the vulnerable, to inflame within your heart a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ as well as others in this world who walk in darkness. Allow the reality of eternity to move you from sentimental feelings of love to tangible action. Allow the reality of eternity to create a longing in you for obedience to the things of God and his word, to enliven inside of you a desire to walk in holiness. Allow the reality of eternity to spring hope inside of you in seasons of darkness. Allow the reality of eternity to loosen your grip on the pleasures of this life. Allow the realities of eternity to unleash worship in your heart for Jesus. Allow the reality of eternity to cultivate prayers whose impact, if they were granted, would literally shake the heavens and earth and cripple the forces of Satan and evil as they exist in this broken place. Allow the reality of eternity to break your heart over the injustices of this world. Allow the reality of eternity to invigorate your heart so that when you're tempted into seasons of apathy and inaction about the things of God, you're prodded forward by the spirit that lives inside of you. I cannot remember who said it, but when asked about what it is to be a pastor one individual replied, well, I teach people to die once at the end of their life with eternity stretched out before them and to die every day to themselves and to this world with eternity stretched out before them. Brothers and sisters, eternity is definite and decisive. Life is fragile and finite. And my prayer for us as a church, for me as an individual and for you as an individual as you follow Jesus is that we would heed Christ's repeated plea to live this fragile, finite life in light of the definitive and decisive reality of eternity. Let's worship together. You can go and stand.